Sovereign immunity is the legal doctrine that a government cannot be sued without its consent. The doctrine stems from the ancient concept that the king, or sovereign, created the laws of the nation, and therefore cannot be found to have violated his or her own laws. The king can do no wrong. In the United States, sovereign immunity applies to the federal government and to states. The Supreme Court has also long recognized sovereign immunity for Native American tribes. But tribal immunity is not unlimited, and Congress has the power to waive tribal immunity through legislation. In order for Congress to waive tribal immunity, according to the Supreme Court, Congress must make its intent, quote, unmistakably clear. This is known as the clear statement rule, and it's designed to avoid unintentional abrogation of sovereign immunity, which could sow confusion and create inter-sovereign conflict. If the statute is ambiguous or Congress's intent unclear, a waiver of sovereign immunity will not be found, and tribal immunity will apply. This precise issue was addressed by the Supreme Court this past term in the bankruptcy context. In 2019, Lac du Flambeau Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, through one of its businesses, a payday lender known as LendGreen, loaned $1,100 to Brian Coughlin. But Coughlin filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy before the loan was repaid. Under the Bankruptcy Code, Coughlin's bankruptcy filing triggered an automatic stay that, among other things, essentially should have prevented Coughlin's creditors from pursuing their debts, except through the structured process afforded by the bankruptcy rules. Nonetheless, Lendgreen persisted in its collection activities. In fact, according to Coughlin, their collection efforts were so forceful, persistent, and aggressive that he attempted suicide. Coughlin filed a motion to enforce the automatic stay against the tribe and its, quote, arms like Lendgreen, for violating the automatic stay and seeking damages for lost wages, medical expenses, emotional distress, and legal fees. The bankruptcy court dismissed the claims based upon the tribe's assertion that it and all of its arms, including Lendgreen, were entitled to tribal sovereign immunity for any claim for damages for their violation of the automatic stay. On appeal, the First Circuit Court of Appeals reversed. In a divided opinion, the First Circuit held that Congress had unmistakably waived sovereign immunity in the bankruptcy code. Specifically, Congress waived sovereign immunity for, quote, all governmental units. Although the definition of governmental units in the statute does not include the phrase Indian tribes as part of the definition, it contains the following laundry list of entities followed by a broad catch-all, quote, United States, States, Commonwealth, District, Territory, Municipality, Foreign State, Department or Instrumentality of the United States, or other foreign or domestic government. The First Circuit's decision deepened an existing split among federal courts on the issue. The Supreme Court took the case to resolve the circuit split. Did Congress unmistakably authorize lawsuits like Coughlin's against tribes? Or would tribal immunity reign supreme? This is Lac du Flambeau, Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians versus Coughlin.
Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today, we're talking about a case that implicates a doctrine as old as government itself, sovereign immunity. With me is Richard Gottlieb, a nationally known authority on bankruptcy law and litigation. Rick represents Brian Coughlin in the case. Welcome, Rick. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me, sir. It's really uh, wonderful to be here today. So you lost in the trial court. Well, you lost on this issue that we're talking about. Yeah. You won on appeal, but in a divided opinion. And then in a decision by the Supreme Court of the United States, authored by that court's newest justice, Justice Jackson, you win in a resounding manner, eight to one. Now, the reasoning of the decision was fairly straightforward. Looking at the language defining, quote, governmental unit, which I cited in my opening remarks, the court said that the bankruptcy code waives sovereign immunity for all governments. The tribe is a government, and therefore the code waives sovereign immunity as to the tribe. From my perspective, that somewhat oversimplifies the analysis. The statute doesn't state that sovereign immunity is waived as to all governments. It identifies a laundry list of governments or entities of which tribes are not included. But then it includes that broad catch-all language at the end, quote, other foreign or domestic governments. So the main question, at least from where I sit, seems to have been whether the tribe qualifies as a foreign or domestic government. And it's clearly a government. I mean, it creates its own laws. The United States has entered into treaties with tribes. Courts have recognized tribes as governments. I think that part of the analysis should have been straightforward. But then the question I think is maybe a little bit murkier, whether or not they're foreign or domestic. And I think the courts have said, well, they're not foreign. And so then I guess that leaves, are they domestic? Well, certainly they are domestic in the sense of their locale. They're within the United States, not dissimilar to a state or a municipality in that, in that sense. So it would seem to me that the correct statutory analysis here would lead to the same conclusion, but would require some sort of characterization of the tribes as either foreign or domestic. And of course, the court didn't engage in that analysis. So my first question to you, Rick, is what was your reaction to that? I know you're brief focused on that argument quite a bit. And why do you think the court shied away from that more precise statutory analysis? Well, that's an interesting question, Bob. First off, one of the things that I pointed out um, in fact, to Supreme Court counsel Greg Rapowy, who actually argued the case in front of the Supreme Court, is that the bankruptcy code actually has a, its own explicit rules of statutory construction. And that exact question was one of the questions that was raised by Justice Gorsuch uh, in his uh, dialogue with, um, with Greg during the course of oral argument. And he posed it with kind of an ice cream analogy, basically saying, I've got, I've got a, a, a bucket of vanilla, I've got a bucket of chocolate, and then I've got a small amount of fudge swirl somewhere in the middle there. 
And I say, you can choose either one. And can you go and get the fudge swirl that sits between the chocolate and the vanilla? And correctly, if Greg pointed out something that many people don't realize, that under the bankruptcy code's own rules of statutory construction, and these are explicit to the bankruptcy code, under section 102, subparagraph five, believe it or not, the word or is not exclusive, meaning it can be an amalgamation of both of them. So in this particular case, as Greg pointed out during oral argument, he could reach for the fudge swirl if this was the bankruptcy code. If it were just him at Gorsuch's personal house, he'd probably stick to the vanilla just as a matter of personal protection. But under the bankruptcy code, because the bankruptcy code makes explicit that you can have something in between those two things, that in that, if you want to view foreign or domestic either as extreme polar opposites of one another, or you view it on as poles against a spectrum where an existing quasi-governmental organization might fall somewhere in between, it wouldn't really matter for the purposes of the bankruptcy code because that particular phrase, or, is not exclusive. And for that reason, I felt that although the language that Justice Jackson used was very broad in many ways, might I even go as far to say as perhaps it has unintended consequences of being so broad, at least in the context of the bankruptcy code, which is what I'm actually familiar with. I, I Prior to this case, I had no background uh, in dealing with Native American tribes. It's only through this particular case that I even knew this issue existed. And boy, did I have a steep learning curve. But the, from my point of view, this was really an issue of bankruptcy law. And the tribe had a particularly difficult conceptual argument to make because the court was essentially interpreting a federal bankruptcy statute. If they had been dealing with, say, an Indian or a tribal-related statute, that might have been different, let me suggest, than many of the maxims and biases or preferences that exist in that kind of analysis might have come to the fore. But the bankruptcy code is a much, much more structured piece of legislation. Even the definition of the, the, the purpose of even that definition of what is a governmental unit is not just merely for the sake of determining sovereign immunity under Section 106. There's a reason why that laundry list exists as it does, because there are many different subcategories, even within the larger supercategory of governmental unit. The concept of what a state is, is a defined term under the bankruptcy code. The United States is, in fact, a defined term under the bankruptcy code, believe it or not. Municipality is a defined term under the bankruptcy code. So, and each of those individual sub-definitions have served different purposes, whether it's dealing with, say, taxes in a bankruptcy case issued by a state or by a United States or an instrumentality of either one of the states or an instrumentality of a district or a territory. But the catch-all phrase any other foreign or domestic government, I think makes it particularly clear, even if it's a foreign government, such as, say, the nation of Iraq, there actually was a case, believe it or not, 
many, many years ago, in which the nation of Iraq was found, I think this is during the Saddam Hussein years, was found to have been liable for violating the automatic stay because they tried collecting money from a debtor in a bankruptcy case in New York City. That was a very, very long time ago, though, if memory serves me. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised with the outcome. What I was surprised about was how broadly it was being interpreted. I'm used to dealing within the four corners, if you will, of the bankruptcy code itself, which is very circumspect. It doesn't really lend itself to making sweeping statements. But don't tell the Supreme Court that. They like making sweeping statements, at least, at least when it came to this. And that may lead, I think, in the future to some unintended consequences. But that's just me. Well, I want to go back to Justice Gorsuch's ice cream example for a moment. You know, he he authored the lone dissent in this case. And essentially, he thought there was some ambiguity in the statute at the very least. He he viewed the, the tribes as sort of this sui generis governmental entity, not quite foreign, not quite domestic, you know, your fudge swirl example, if you will. And because of that unique relationship, it, it, and when Congress tends to have ad addressed tribes historically, I guess, um, they've always referred to tribes specifically in their statutes, and, and they didn't hear. And uh, in Gorsuch's view, that created some ambiguity because of the clear purpose rule, that ambiguity should inure to the benefit of the tribes. But now, in order to get there, Justice Gorsuch went through a lot of history. You know, he cites letters exchanged between George Washington and Henry Knox, which was fascinating. The great Chief Justice Marshall's opinion in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. And so, and I know your brief did an excellent job on this point, but you had to traverse this history. And, and go back and characterize tribes in, in, in some fashion in order to address the issues that arose during this litigation, in particular coming from, you know, coming from the tribe in their arguments. How did you and your team do that? And, and when did it start? I know that you sort mm -hmm. of mentioned, well, you know, I learned all about, you know, tribal law essentially through this case. So was that in the, in the, trial court that you started getting into this first circuit? Did it come up only at, at SCOTUS? You know, what, what did that process look like for you? The idea was introduced, but not really heavily delved into, at least on our point, from our point of view in the first circuit, but it was definitely more looked at during the appeal before the Supreme Court. The, the, the point was, is that I believe from our point of view, from a strategic point of view and a tactical point of view, our team basically felt that our strongest arguments, the ones that we would make, as opposed to those that might be made by Amakai Curie on both sides, we felt that the most important arguments that we could make would to, were not to address the underlying question of going into the, the history of Native American tribes vis-a-vis -vis the bankruptcy code. Again, it was important from our point of view that we focus to focus the court's attention on whether or not the bankruptcy code intended to abrogate sovereign immunity and to what extent and with respect to what kinds of entities that can be abrogated. 
And again, part of it, I believe, the reason we, the way we dealt with this was to look at the structure of the way the bankruptcy code was created. As I mentioned earlier on, section 10127, which is the definition of what a governmental unit is, is actually a multi-part, is actually a nested definition because section 10127 is actually referenced in different areas, much more than just in, under section 106. It's dealt with with respect to questions of the automatic uh, the automatic stay exceptions for police powers. It's dealt with under section five with exceptions to discharge under section 523A1. It's dealt uh, with with respect to uh, many other issues in terms of the dischargeability, of, not just the dischargeability of debts, but also whether or not uh, tax returns have to be filed on time and in what context. So you have to look at it from the standpoint of if you were creating a code of law that was going to be comprehensive and it had to deal with many different issues, not just sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity is important. Make no mistake about it from a structural standpoint, it is important, but it's only one facet of what is normally involved in a bankruptcy case. There are many more issues that are involved uh, that are much more commonly dealt with in bankruptcy cases. Sovereign immunity is not one of them. So it was important for Congress to use this laundry list of uh, to create what amounts to a super definition, an overarching definition for governmental units, rather than relying upon, okay, this is the definition of state. This is the definition of municipality. This is the definition of, an, in, of uh, the United States of America. And how does it apply? They had to create a superset, if you will, of all of those definitions. And then with respect to those definitions, created the phrase governmental unit, which is a much larger concept, and then added at the very bottom of that, and other foreign or domestic governments. And it was not for nothing. If Congress had intended that tribal sovereign immunity not be included in the bankruptcy code, in other words, if section 106 used the term state, United States, or instrumentality of the United States, with respect to the question of uh, abrogation of sovereign immunity, but didn't use the phrase governmental unit. It could have done that, by the way, because as we know, states in, like uh, the federal government itself have sovereign immunity. But Congress went beyond that. Uh, it decided that any entity that uh, was a governmental unit, any foreign or domestic government of any kind, and any instrumentality thereof, would also be covered by this. So I don't think it's for nothing, if you will, that Congress wanted to define the scope of Section 106A in defining whose sovereign immunity is abrogated, use the term governmental unit deliberately. And for that reason, because of that structure, that it was, I believe, easier to overcome the more policy-based arguments that were being put forward by the tribe and raised by Justice Gorsuch. To be fair, if you think about it, if you have all of these, if you're trying to create a, a piece of legislation, like the bankruptcy code, the bankruptcy code, this particular definition and the abrogation provisions 
was not part of the original bankruptcy code in 1978. It looked very different in 1978. It was only in 1994 with the amendments to the bankruptcy code at that point in time that section 106A was changed and to the way it looks today. And if Congress had wanted to make those, uh, to make the changes to, to limit the scope of sovereign immunity to states, it was certainly within their, their wheelhouse to do so, but they chose not to. Looking at George Washington and Henry Knox and uh, cases dating back to Chief Justice Marshall's tenure in the early part of the 19th century is all well and good, but we're dealing with a statute that postdates it by 200 years. And taking that, I mean, we have, to, we, we have the benefit. We have the benefit of having much more recent statutory rules of construction to be able to depend, depend upon in these sorts of situations. So while I appreciate Judge, Justice Gorsuch's foray into Native American history as it applies to the Supreme Court, I don't think under these circumstances, I believe the Supreme Court felt that the easier and appropriate way to analyze this was based strictly on issues of statutory construction and not based upon overarching policy considerations. Well, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about your team. I know that you handled this case all the way up to the Supreme Court, but at that point in time, and I, you mentioned this earlier, you brought in Greg Rappaway and his team, and and he ultimately argued the case before the court. I listened to the arguments. He did a, a superb job. What what did that process look like? Where you know of of bringing in a Supreme Court specialist on a case like this? You know, how did you find Mr. Rappaway? How does your client pay for it? I mean, just what did, what did that whole process look like? Wow. Well, actually, it was. You know, it's interesting. One thing kind of leads to another. I did not. First of all, let me say at the very outset, I was never expecting. I was never expecting that this particular issue would be the one that ends up in the U.S. Supreme Court. This was not what I was thinking about. In fact, I didn't think this was going to be the issue that go, would go to the First Circuit. My question, my issue, had to do with a different First Circuit case by the name of Inre Rivera-Torres, which dealt with the availability of emotional distress damages against a governmental unit under Section 106A3. And I had did... In my legal research, I had found that there had been a similar attempt by other attorneys in the years past since Rivera-Torres to essentially have that re-reviewed. One of those people was a lawyer by the name of Terry Harmon, who was a former trustee in bankruptcy out of New Hampshire. And so I called her asking her for some, basically some of her advice and maybe some of her briefs. And we simply got to talking and she said, you know what? I'd really love to get involved in this. Can I get involved in this? I said, sure, why not? More is merrier. And that's and so because I was expecting she would be helping me on what I expected to be the the issue that would come before the First Circuit. Because in the intervening period of time between the what's called the Doobie case and and the present time, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals had done a very searching decision that came to the absolute opposite conclusion of the First Circuit in Rivera Torres. And so I had the same kind of split in the circuits that would at least give me the, how shall I say, the predicate to raising the issue once again before the First Circuit Court of Appeals 
on a direct appeal, which is what I was originally expecting to be, but for the dismissal of the case by Judge Bailey on, on the grounds of tribal sovereign immunity. Well, it turns out that as we were preparing to do the direct appeal, Terry is very good at reaching out at different lawyers. And so she, by happenstance, she reached out to Greg. I mean, I, I don't know who she found him, to be perfectly honest. I think she found him from a friend of a friend. And he became really interested because he had been involved in a similar case in Greek, called Greek in Ray Greektown, which had been going up on appeal, as it turns out, until the matter happened to be settled. So he was all said, gee whiz, finally a second shot at this issue. And he said, sure, I'll do it. I said, really? Because my client's in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy case to begin with. The the way that we get paid under the sec if I'm successful in front of the bankruptcy court, now that the case has been brought back to the bankruptcy court, it is likely that I will be able to recover legal fees for the whole thing, which would include Terry, Greg, and myself for all of our work. And I have to tell you, Greg and his law firm, Kellogg Hansen, they did the yeoman's share of the work here, without a doubt. I, I must tell you, I have... Prior to this case, I had only been in, inside the Supreme Court chambers once. And you have to understand that when you walk into the Supreme Court courtroom, I mean, even when it's empty, it's intimidating. I'm a, I'm a, both by trade and by inclination a bankruptcy lawyer. I am I'm old enough to remember when the bankruptcy court in Massachusetts was located in the Tip O'Neill Federal Building on the fifth floor. And oral art and arguments before the court would take place approximately five to 10 feet away from the judge on only a slightly raised dais. I mean, you'd have, it would still be a very formal process, but it was by comparison to the Supreme Court, it was positively informal by comparison. And it's a much more down to earth type of process. I knew that just standing there in an empty courtroom of the size of the United States Supreme Court with nine faces looking at you and literally hundreds of faces behind you that I would find it far too intimidating to make a cogent sentence, uh, uh, much less have a strong oral argument. Greg is a, a incredibly brilliant attorney. His background, he had clerked for year in many years before, had, had clerked in the First Circuit Court of Appeals. He had lots of experience talking in front of folks such as Justice Gorsuch and the like. And I felt, you know, I, I was so lucky. I can only I put it down to divine providence. <laughs> what can I say? That that he came into uh, our orbit, Terry's and Mai's orbit, with his help and with Matt Draken's help. And the process of getting geared up for this. So to be fair, we had an entire much larger team of satellite Amakai that were also involved, not the least of which were a number of federal bankruptcy judges, retired federal bankruptcy judges, who filed an Amakai brief along with the National Bankruptcy, I guess the I guess the NBRA, the National Consumer Law Center, and a number of other entities as well. So in many ways, this was not just an endeavor on my part. I I, I like to think that although you know. 
you're very kind when you say that that I was deeply involved in this. Yes, I was involved, but this was a team effort in every way that the word team has any meaning. This was not just my effort. This was the effort of the of a large number of lawyers, and not the not the least of which, besides Terry, besides the Amakai, besides the retired federal bankruptcy judges. The Office of the United States Trustee, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Office of the Solicitor General, who also paid attention to what we had and basically supported us in this. And I just feel, for lack of a better word, you I mean, it, it, it makes you feel kind of blessed in a strange sort of way to, to think. I started this case as a result of being terribly, terribly afraid for a client who was trying to take his own life because he could not get the surcease that he was legally entitled to receive under the bankruptcy code. You have no idea. I've, I've been doing this kind of work for more than 36 years. In that 36 years, I've represented literally hundreds of debtors. I've never had a client that was so depressed by being dunned by a creditor who should have known better, should have known better, did know better, Come so depressed and despondent that he would try to take his own life. I, I, I've never had to call up a, the, the Boston Police Department to try and do a wellness check on a client before. But I did in this case. He spent three weeks at Mass General as a result of this. He lost three weeks of time from work. This was really an insult to the bankruptcy court and the bankruptcy code. After 36 years, I become very much identified with the bankruptcy process itself. This is what I've been doing for most of my legal career. I really do believe in the bankruptcy code and the, and the values that are associated with it. I really care that the automatic stay is respected. The automatic stay is not just there for debtors and creditors. It's there to basically hold up the jurisdiction of the, of the federal bankruptcy court in the first place. It's how the bankruptcy court operates on a day-to-day -day basis. And by essentially thumbing their nose at the automatic stay, th that was just a rank insult to the bankruptcy court. And then to come back and say, oh, you can't do a thing about it because we have tribal sovereign immunity was, frankly, the ultimate insult that could not go unchallenged. And that's really why I brought the motion to enforce the automatic stay and for sanctions in the first place. It was certainly to help the client but it was also to, to vindicate the process. I know that sounds highfalutin, but that's really how I felt. Even though we're lawyers, we have a job to do. I, we're, we're humans as well, although maybe not everyone agrees with that view of lawyers. Well, this is true. <laughs> but, you know, you were emotionally invested in this case on a number of levels, it sounds like. And that's totally normal. You know, we, we, we're professionals. We spend a lot of time on our craft. We spend a lot of time on our cases. We spend a lot of time with our clients. You know, there's, there's pressures associated with that deadlines, you know, and in many ways we, we oftentimes will, will take on the stress that our clients are, are feeling in regards to a particular situation. And it sounds like, you know, particularly, with you know the mental health issues associated here with your client that was magnified on many many levels yes. and so you know I, I i have to ask this question because you know i know for me personally when i'm 
sitting in court waiting for a verdict or even when, you know, now we get decisions through email, when I get a decision in, you know, my adrenaline starts pumping so hard that, you know, my hands start shaking. And I remember when I saw this decision come through, I was certainly excited to read it. What did it feel like for you, Rick, after having gone through everything that you went through on this case and knowing what, what you know about how this could impact your client, what did it feel like when that decision came you know, in through your computer or however you received it? I felt valid. I, the only, I, I thought about this question actually, and I have to say that I felt personally validated by it, that, that the idea that, the, that federal bankruptcy law should be applied equally and not based upon concepts that really are foreign and ought to be considered foreign to the bankruptcy process itself. I mean, one of the points that Justice Jackson, I think, got right, if, if not in the actual wording of the way she put it, but at least in terms of the spirit that she expressed it, was the idea that this that that the bankruptcy code has no uh, should I say sovereign immunity has no place no place in the bankruptcy process it applies to all governments regardless of what they are and to to think otherwise particularly where you can have potentially non-state actors uh, non-tribal actors utilizing potentially utilizing the powers of sovereign immunity as not merely a a sword uh, not merely as a shield but also as a sword is anathema to the very bankruptcy process so when i saw that decision affirming the first circuit and particularly the 8 to 1 i had actually been rooting for 90 but I'll, i can i can live with with 8 to 1 that i felt really validated by it. i felt that that everything that i had worked for everything all the questions that or the doubts that I had in the back of my mind, it essentially evaporated in the course of 30 seconds. And it felt really, I must confess, it felt really good inside. Not me just meaningful to me personally, but meaningful to the bankruptcy process at large. So that it reaffirmed the idea that the bankruptcy code is a beautiful example of equal justice under the law. And, and this was essentially a, 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 another pronouncement that validated that concept. Just remarkable. So what's next, what's next in the case, Rick? Well, literally, I just filed a motion for the court to, at least as of the date we're recording this, just the other day, I filed a motion to essentially have the adversary proceeding rules appropriate to adversary proceedings in bankruptcy cases applied to this contested matter. It is, after all, still a motion as well as the, requesting the court to schedule a pretrial conference and issue a pretrial order under Rule 16, under federal, under federal Rule 16 as applied under Rule 7016 of the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure. And we'll now see whether or not the bankruptcy court schedules a PTC and have that conducted. We're looking forward to doing a, a much more searching form of discovery with respect to the tribe and its many subspecies of subsidiaries, all of which they have acknowledged are arms, are in fact part of, are a constituent constituency of the tribe itself. 
So it really comes down to my mind is whether or not there are non-tribal actors in here so that the liability that we know exists can be properly apportioned both between a tribal actor, which does have certain rights under Section 106A, and non-tribal actors that have no right to stand behind Section 106A and may be, in fact, liable for even punitive damages under Section 362K. Well, Rick, you know, best of luck on 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 the case, and congratulations on uh, an incredible victory. And, and thanks for Thank joining you very today. Very much. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at burnkoflegal.com. That's rstetson at B-E-R-N-K-O-P-F legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.